Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. May God bless the reading of His Word, and prepare our hearts to hear it this morning as it's preached to us. I'm going to bring to you a message this morning just entitled, The King is a Friend of Sinners. Aren't you glad that our King is a friend of sinners? And this morning, my purpose would be to convince us that we are the ones that He is a friend of and that there are those out there that are sinners and our King is friends with them, so we must be friends as well. Matthew is showing us here and through his entire gospel that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who has come to save his people from their sins and he's showing us in the particular text that we're in this morning in a in a little bit broader context than chapter 9 but chapter 5 through 9 he's showing us Jesus ministry and this ministry is one of teaching proclaiming and healing and as this ministry takes place Jesus is revealing who he is and he's teaching us and proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching us about discipleship And so, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, Jesus is showing his authority and Matthew is laying that out for us, not necessarily in a chronological order, but certainly in a theological order, showing us the building authority of our Savior and the building hostility toward him because of what he is claiming. Matthew has a clear purpose, and so in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus' authority and power over physical illness, his authority and power over nature, over the spiritual world, the, uh, the forces of evil, Satan and all the demons, and then last week we ended with Jesus showing his authority to forgive sins, and this authority, this power of one that can and does forgive sins is what will come in the face of the religious leaders, and let me be clear this morning, it will come in the face of you and I if we actually acknowledge there is nothing that I can do to overcome, get around, atone for my own sin, and still live forever. And so I must have one that would do that for me. So Jesus just kind of confronts all of us with this idea. I am the king. I am the only one that can forgive you. And so if you want forgiveness, if you want eternal life, if you, if you want to have a right relationship with the Lord, you must come to the king. 
And so we saw in these miracles that there is fear in us, and the fear is either terror because the king has this indeed, indeed has this authority, and he will judge, or it is fear that leads to worship, awe, and trust of the king who says, I'm a good king, and I want to forgive. And so we have been asking the question that I believe Matthew is confronting us with, will you follow him? There is the looming question of Matthew's gospel. It is the reason he's writing. Would you follow Jesus or will you keep living the way you've been living? And that begs this question, church. That is, what is wrong with the way I've been living? What's wrong with what my status quo is? What's wrong with me sinning and messing up and, um, doing some, some errors and making mistakes and, and just taking care of them. I'll do a little more good or I'll, I'll throw a little more in an offering plate or I'll go to church a little more or I'll take care of the person sitting on the corner that needs food and I'll atone for my own sin. What's wrong with the way that I've been living? Well, what's wrong with the way that you've been living is you have not been, if you're not trusting the Lord, you have not been Coming before him. And so Matthew shows us Jesus' answer to this question in the text that we're in front of this morning, and that is what is wrong with the way that I've been living? Why do I need a king? Why do I need one who has the authority to forgive? You see, church, there are essentially two major fallacies in our view of ourselves and others that hinder us from following Jesus. I hope that you know these. We've talked about them before, but let me put them under two categories for us this morning. And hopefully once we understand that, this text will even make more sense to us. The first one is just this view uh, that uh, the self-help world around us has and most psychology has and actually most philosophy in our day would have. And that is, I'm okay, you're okay. We might have something that's wrong with us, but that's just part of being human. I might mess up every once in a while, but ultimately, I'm okay and you're okay. This comes from all kinds of philosophical foundations that have crept into our Western culture, and it is spread throughout the world. Philosophies that are titled humanism, the focus on man, existential philosophy, and those philosophers. Uh, uh, John Dewey did this in education. Uh, Carl Rogers did this in counseling and psychology, where we view man as basically good, and whatever's wrong in your life is not you it's something outside of you it's something that is not essentially you and so of course part of being human is messing up but there are very few truly evil people in the world now if if that relates if you kind of grab that and you I were to ask you how many evil how many genuinely evil people are in the world most of us could name a few we might name uh, Hitler or Stalin, or a mother who murders her own children, or terrorists in Paris, or here, or anywhere else. We might really say they are genuinely evil people, and these are really the only ones that we believe deserve, or really deserve, separation from God and hell forever. Even when people turn out bad, many times we think, well, it's really not their fault. It was either their parents or the pain that they've gone through in their life or something in their past. And we look around and we don't really believe that we, that is us, let's point the fingers at us first, are truly, genuinely evil, wicked people. We really believe that everybody is pretty good. All things being known. This is why you go to funerals and everybody says, well, such a good person. We can go to a funeral of somebody that's lost and on their way to hell and they're spending their eternity in hell and we'll say they're such a good person because we can't believe that we are genuinely evil people. Now, that's a faulty way. Where does this leave us? 
well, everybody's basically okay. We end up weighing our good against our bad or our good against someone else. And we believe as long as our good outweighs our bad or it at least outweighs someone else's that's worse than us, we'll be okay in eternity. Listen, Jesus came to save sinners. And if we're not sinners, then we don't need Jesus. So we circumvent the gospel and think, well, I can atone for my little mess-ups, but I'm not genuinely evil. I just need to do better. I just need to work harder. So that's the first view. This text is going to confront that, but not directly. It's going to confront the second one. The second one is this. I'm okay, but those people out there, they're not okay, and they're hopeless. You see, it's kind of a response to the I'm okay, you're okay. We get the idea that, well, there are genuinely evil people, but most of us don't believe it's us. Most of us look outside of our circles and say it's them. We might look at other countries, we might look at other races, we might look at other uh, 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 nationalities or whatever it may be and say they are the ones that need help. We might even look at other age groups or anything like that, genders. There are all kinds of things that we look at and say those are the people that are not okay. It's religious people, whatever religion you're following, condemning others in some kind of futile attempt to control or oppress them. This view is what is evident in the passage before us today. You see, there's a religious system that is controlled by a few, and those who are outside of that group are looked down upon, they're not welcome to join it, and they are condemned for not being in the right group. Listen to me again. Jesus came to save sinners, and it's those people, those that are outside of the group. So those of us who have been saved must have compassion for the people outside of the group and we rejoice because the king has come and he is the one that brings us in and them in. Either way, I'm okay, you're okay, or I'm okay, not they're not okay. Either way, we're hindered from becoming true followers of Jesus. And this text, I believe, is going to show us three ways or three things that we need to correct in our view that will bring us to be true followers of Jesus. So, in essence, this is a text about discipleship that corrects our view of ourselves, corrects our view of God, and it corrects our view of the gospel. Let's look at it together. First, there in chapter 9, if you'll go with me, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. First, our view of Jesus is wrong. He is the Messiah and the King. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, where's there? He was in Capernaum and just healed the paralytic. This is the order that it's given in the other two synoptic gospels of Mark and Luke. And after the healing of the paralytic, Jesus passes on from there. He sees a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and he says to him, follow me. And so Jesus is going about his business. He is there most likely in Capernaum. He's either going to a tax booth at the highway where people are bringing their goods in by the road or he's most likely going down by the sea. And Matthew has been appointed as one who is sitting at the tax booth. He is a tax collector, which, by the way, is becomes synonymous. The Greek word for tax collector becomes synonymous with evil, wicked sinner in the New Testament. And so when you see tax collector and sinners, you're seeing two synonyms. And so this tax collector is doing his job, and Jesus goes to him. He sees him. I want you to know how many times we look or we see in this text. Jesus sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. Follow me. This one who has all authority, he has shown his authority over the last couple of weeks. We looked at it. 
ultimately to forgive sin, this authority strikes fear in our hearts. And if you and I don't know that Jesus is the king, we will look at him and we may say he's a great teacher. We may say he's a great uh, moral leader. But we will not see our need to forsake all and follow after him. You see, when we see, if you will believe with me, the gospel of Matthew, that Jesus actually, literally calmed the storm, healed the leper, healed the paralytic, forgave sin, then that would strike fear in our hearts that will end in one of two ways. We will either have that fear looking at Jesus, which ends up in awe and trust of him, and following after him, or our fear will turn into terror and angst, and we will hate this king. We will try to discredit him or any other way to turn away from him. Matthew, the tax collector, is evidently familiar with Jesus because Jesus' home base is Capernaum. He's heard about Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us how well he knows him, but he knows him well enough to know all the things that he's done before he is called here in chapter 9. And so Matthew, most likely familiar with Jesus, responds, and I want you to note how he responds to Jesus' call. The end of verse 9, And he rose and followed him. This is abandon and trust of the king. He has abandoned his life to follow the king. Don't miss this, church. He left his whole way of life. This was a radical decision for a tax collector. Perhaps even more so than the others who left their boats... Leaving your boats is something you can go back and fish. You're dependent on yourself. Leaving the tax profession, leaving the job that is working for the Roman government, there is no going back for Matthew to abandon his post and leave to do this. He has abandoned everything. And here's the point I think Matthew is making to put this in this place in his gospel. And that is, if you know who Jesus is, King then you will have the right view of yourself and others, so your fear will be directed to the king who has all of this authority, and when he looks at you, and make no mistake, he is looking at you this morning, and he says, follow me. You can, with all abandon, with all trust in him, leave everything, put everything on the table and say, my life is yours. The fear when you look at him, will turn to all and trust, and you have no fear of anything else, you are free to leave all and commit to follow him. Matthew understands who Jesus is, and when Jesus gives the command, follow me, he abandons everything out of trust for his Savior and follows after him. Church, when you know who Jesus is, if you will pray, Lord, give me the right view of my Savior, you will abandon everything. Nothing else will matter. As the song says, everything else will grow dim in the light of his glory. Because he is the king. Follow me. If you don't know who Jesus is, you'll never know who you are. So secondly, let's move on. Verse 10, the scene shifts a little bit and from one who abandoned all to follow after Jesus, Matthew is now throwing a party to introduce Jesus to all his friends. Let me say that again. One who abandoned all to follow Jesus is now throwing a party to introduce Jesus to all his friends. Look at verse 10. Jesus reclined at table with him, and who's there? 
Many tax collectors and sinners were coming and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So we got four groups, Jesus, his disciples, the sinners, the tax collectors. Matthew's having a party, and Matthew in his gospel says there in verse 10, Behold, look, look at who's there. There are tax collectors and sinners, and they're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Take note of the guest list. This is not a guest list that many of us would have made. Not many of you would make a guest list the way that Matthew does. As a matter of fact, I would wonder, many of you are probably making guest lists right now for Thanksgiving dinner or for uh, Christmas parties or Christmas dinners, and you probably don't have the same guest list that Matthew does, but Matthew has a guest list that includes those around him that he wants to introduce to Jesus, and he brings them into his home. It's not the party that you and I would normally give. And yet Matthew is giving a party and he wants his friends to to be introduced to Jesus. Listen to this. A changed man wants others to experience the wonder of his king. And you and I should follow suit. So note the indictment here on us. How many tax collectors and sinners do we have fellowship with or really identify with? In other words, let me ask it this way. Who's on your guest list to bring to church, to bring to this fellowship so that you can introduce them to Jesus. Let me get a little more personal. When's the last time that you stepped out of your way or really not even out of your way, just talked to a co-worker or a neighbor or a family member and invited them to this fellowship so that you could introduce them to Jesus? That's Matthew. He's inviting people to the fellowship where we worship And sit with Jesus. And I wonder when you and I, how we are doing so. How's your guest list for those that you're inviting and throwing a party here for Jesus? I hope this morning, just as a side, that you don't decide not to invite people because of how you think we might react. Because look at verse 11 and how those that see what's going on, how they react. The religious people see it. So look at verse 10, Matthew says, see, behold, look at who's there. Verse 11 says, the Pharisees saw, they did behold, they saw who was there and they have great questions about it. I think it's really, it's really interesting to note that Matthew does note that they don't ask Jesus. I don't know if their fear of Jesus keeps them from asking him, but they pull some of his disciples aside and say, let, let us ask you a question about your king. And so they see it and question his disciples in this accusatory way. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing something that is unthinkable, that is not acceptable? Tax collectors and sinners, it's one thing for them to hear your teaching. It's another thing for you to sit at table with them. Note this, eating is considered association in first century Judaism. When you eat with someone, when you recline at table with them, you are associating with them. And when you associate with them, you are not condemning them. You are being part of them. And so the Pharisees would say, you can't do that. If he really was a religious leader, he would not be associating with those that are unclean, the tax collectors, the hated people, and the sinners. This is unfathomable to religious people. Why? We don't associate with those people. Now, church, this is an indictment on us because I believe this morning there are probably in your mind, your heart, those people, whoever they are. I don't know who they are to you. I'll give you some ideas in just a moment. But I think that you and I probably have ideas that are driven in our mind that those people don't worship. They don't meet with Jesus with us. That's where you're you're pharisaical there. 
And so we don't associate with those people. I want you to note Jesus' response, and it is an indictment to them. And so look at verse 12, the adversative, but when he heard it. When Jesus heard it, I don't know if he was standing within range or if he just knew their heart. The Bible doesn't tell us. He, though, hears it, and he responds to them. And he responds in a verse that has become really, really close to my heart because I think it is where we are as a people in our day, in our Western culture, and there really are two indictments here. I went back and looked at my notes, church, those of you who have been here a while, for when I preached through this in in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, I preached through a text that is identical to this in many ways, and I don't think that I even saw both indictments here. The first one is really clear to us, and it is very clear in that Jesus uses those who are sick. But when he heard it, he said, those who are, have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That point is clear, and I want you to know it. The indictment first is you believe you are well, and you need no physician. If you believe you are well, those who are well, they have no need of a doctor. But those who are sick, they need a doctor. So, here's the indictment. If you're in either one of the first two hindrances to seeing ourselves that I mentioned, I'm okay, you're okay, or I'm okay, those people are not okay, either one of them start out with I'm okay. And if you believe you're okay, then you have no need for the gospel, you have no need for Jesus, there is no need for him to have taken on flesh because you ultimately believe you are okay. That's the Pharisees, and that is many, many, many of us sitting in churches. We ultimately believe, I'm all right, don't nobody worry about me. I have no need of a doctor. There's a second indictment here. If the first one hits you, then let me be clear. You are the leper. You are the paralytic. You are the one who needs his sins forgiven. But until you see that you're sick, you'll never turn to Jesus as a Savior. There's a second indictment, and it hits us even closer here. And that is the indictment in this text is you are not concerned with the sick, but you should be, as Jesus is. You see, those who are sick, they do need a doctor. They can't heal themselves. And so Jesus quotes Hosea 6 here in verse verse 13. Go and learn what this means. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He is quoting here a text that is not abolishing the sacrificial system. Rather, it is emphasizing, God is emphasizing in Hosea this idea of relationship, an interpersonal relationship with God and with his people. I desire mercy. I desire steadfast love. I want you to love the way God loves. And so Hosea is making this point to us. Love God because he loves you so much. And love others because you have been given and have received such mercy. And so look at what he's saying. You and I need to have the compassion of our Savior. Jesus is calling his followers to have compassion toward those who are sick, the sinners, the lost. And so this second indictment is simply this. How can you be content to condemn sinners when you should, in compassion, bring them to the healer? The healer, the physician is here. Why could you sit here and look at the world and say, that's those people. Aren't you glad we're not those people here in church? I mean, we've got it a little bit together. We at least go to church every week. Let me tell you, the world outside doesn't look at those that are in here and think you're much different than them. And the reality is we're not. And 
if you and I don't show the compassion of Jesus Christ to those who are out there, those people, whoever they may be, then we are indicted by the Savior as not understanding the gospel and discipleship. You see, there's really only two explanations for how we condemn others and leave them out there and don't go after them. We either believe they are unreachable, which means we don't know the power and authority of our Savior, or we don't believe they should be reached. We don't have the love that Jesus has for those sinners and tax collectors here, as well as all throughout this text, is a, a, a word that you and I could have this, this idea of outcast. Those who are outcast. It could be those who were sinners, those who are actually sinners. So let me ask you this. Those people for us would include those who are prostitutes, those who are addicts, gays and lesbians, alcoholics. That would include swindlers and liars and drug dealers and cheaters and thieves and terrorists. And how are you and I viewing them? Do we look at them and say, those people don't deserve anything? Or do we look at them and say, they need the gospel, let's go take it to them? Do we invite them to our dinner as we feed on the bread of life here? Or would we say, they don't fit with us? But it's not only the sinners. There are other outcasts that are outcasts that may even be here, but you and I very often just ignore them or act like they're not part. There are those in our community and those in our area who are homeless. There are those that are minorities, the poor. How about divorcees? They feel outcasts. Singles, single parents, they often feel outcast by us. Elderly, socially awkward. Other folks that are just like this and we cast them out and we think they're not like us. They don't have the same socioeconomic status. They don't have the same color. They don't have the same age as us. And we outcast them and we are just like the Pharisees. We not only believe that we are well and really don't need a Savior, we look at other people and say, we're not going to take the Savior to them. That's the indictment that Jesus is giving to the religious people here. The King, the Savior, the one who came to save His people from their sins. He is here. Are you bringing people to Him? So we really don't have the right view of ourselves and others, that we are sick and that the sick need the Savior. In chapter 1, verse 21, Matthew says he came to save his people from their sins. Here in chapter 9, verse 13, wrapping up this text, he says, For I came, just a quick note, Jesus wasn't created when he was born like you and I were. He came He's eternally existent. And he came to call sinners. Paul would say, of which I am chief. So would your pastor. I am the chief of sinners. Jesus has come to call me to himself. Because I need a physician. And you do as well. Chapter 20, verse 28. Matthew's going to remind us that he came to die. So that we could be saved. It's another scene shift in chapter 9 verse 14. John's disciples then come. If the Pharisees accusation was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. John's disciples accuse him of not being a friend of true religion. So get this. Jesus is getting it from both sides. The Pharisees say well you're just a friend of sinners. You can't be a religious man. And John's disciples are coming and saying, you're not a friend of true religion. You don't do our rituals, so you can't be a religious man. 
And Jesus is going to show us in this passage what he means by bringing in this new covenant. And so you and I need to correct our view of Jesus. He is the king. Follow him. We need to correct our view of ourselves and others. We're sick. They're sick. And we all need a savior. So let's go to them. And thirdly, we need to correct our view of the gospel. In chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus is confronted with John's disciples. And they say, why do we and the Pharisees, just to note, if you're ever accusing Jesus of something, or if you're ever accusing anybody of something, and you group yourself with the Pharisees, you're probably on very shaky ground. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples don't fast at all. Why do we do the religious things, but you guys don't? We're religious people. You're not. So, note one, don't ever group yourself with the Pharisees. But now Jesus is going to get to the point, verse 15. You see, they're fasting, and Jesus is going to describe what is going on, and they fast. The Bible does, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant does uh, prescribe one fast. It's on the Day of Atonement. Many, though, by Jesus' time, were fasting twice a week. On Monday and Thursday, they would fast. And so even in John's ministry, which was preparation for the Messiah, it was a time of repentance and fasting. And so it was time to fast. But now, Jesus says in verse 15, the king is here and the kingdom is at hand. And it is then a time of rejoicing. It's a time for joy. Look at what he says. He uses three illustrations to point this out. First, the bridegroom. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now note here, just aside, he's not teaching on fasting here, but note that fasting is a time of mourning according to Jesus. Can the guests, the wedding guests, those who are invited to the wedding, it would be unthinkable for you to come to a wedding feast and not feast but mourn. Right? So if you... Remember your wedding and you have this big feast either the night before or the the night of and everybody is having this great joy at your wedding and there's somebody there saying, well, this is a time for mourning. You would say, no, this is not a funeral. This is a wedding. Jesus says it's unthinkable. The king is here. It's a time for rejoicing, not a time for mourning. And so then he says, as he goes on down in verse 15, the days will come. It's, there's coming a time when the bridegroom is, and this is a violent uh, a word here, taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus is saying that now, look at what he said, now the bridegroom is with them. This is what John or Matthew has told us from the beginning. God in Christ is Emmanuel. God is with us in Jesus. And so we see this key Old Testament metaphor for Jesus being God as the bridegroom. He has come to see his bride, to rejoice with his bride, to pronounce the wedding and enjoy the wedding feast. And you cannot mourn during this, but there's coming a time when the bridegroom is going to be violently taken away, which is pointing to Jesus' knowledge of his own death that is coming because of those who will hate him, because of what he's even teaching here. And so the bridegroom will take, be taken away. Then fasting will take place, and it does. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 27. You see the people of God that are fasting, but now the bridegroom is here, and everything has changed for the bride celebrate, rejoice. And so the bridegroom shows us that. Secondly, in verse 16, he gives us an illustration of new cloth. He says again, it would be unthinkable for you to put a piece of new cloth as a patch on an old worn out garment. 
Those of you who have ever done this, you know exactly what he's talking about. The new cloth that is placed on an old garment, if you sew that in there, when that new cloth begins to shrink, it will just tear the old garment and it will make the tear bigger. That's exactly what he says. The tear will be worse after it is shrunk. And so you never would think about doing that. And so here's what he's teaching. Jesus has not come to patch up Judaism. It's not a religion that needs patching up. There is something brand new in the works. He is proclaiming a new thing that God is doing to accomplish salvation. And he, Jesus, the king, is here to do it. And so verse 17, the last illustration very quickly, he's making the same point. He says, new wine, which is really unfermented wine, it would be unthinkable to put that unfermented wine in old wineskins because they will be brittle. And that new unfermented wine, which goes through the fermenting process, will will, uh, have pressure and bubble and expand and it will break the old wineskins and they will both be lost. And so we put new wine in new wineskins so that both the wine and the wineskins are preserved. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is not updating or repairing a worn out Judaism, but he's ushering in something brand new. The king is here and the kingdom is at hand. All that Judaism pointed to come to pass is here. Judaism was here. The old covenant was here to show you two things. You're a sinner. I am going to accomplish salvation. I will send the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he will redeem you. And Jesus says, I'm not here to patch up what Moses did. I'm here to fulfill every bit of it by doing something new in your midst. The old garment and the old wineskins were always intended to show and point out the need for something that is new. Jesus is not rejecting the law and the prophets here. He has come to fulfill them. He has come not to confine his followers even further to some laws, some religion like you got to fast to be right with God. He is coming, rather listen, to free us to live for him through the covenant purchased by his blood. So the old garment, the old wineskins were always meant, the, the Old Testament, the old covenant, always meant to point for the, to the need for the new. And Jesus is saying there is a new covenant. The covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, it cannot be contained in the old. It is new. So listen, what does this mean for you? Discipleship is not do better, do more, and condemn others when they're not. Discipleship is Jesus did, He is perfect, repent and believe. It's a new wineskin. Because the way that we come in is the blood of the one who is like us. Not the blood of bulls and rams as we'll learn in Hebrews. It will not. They were never going to atone for sin. They were pointing to the new thing, the new wineskin, which is the blood and flesh of our Savior. Discipleship is not do better, do more, condemn others. Discipleship is this. Jesus' blood atones and washes. You see, Jesus both forgives our sins. That's his authority. That's his power. He forgives our sins and he makes us righteous because here's the new thing. Here's the new covenant. He is putting his spirit within us. This is the new covenant. It is discipleship. His spirit in us will bring us to obey the words of Christ. This means, church, in our very fellowship. Listen carefully. I'm about done. Stick with me. This means in our fellowship, We don't expect you to have it all together to be a part of who we are. We're not looking to condemn you because you mess up. We're looking to accept you because we're all messed up. 
It means that we have compassion on all people. It doesn't matter what your age is, what your race is, what your marital status is. Listen, I'm going to offend you here. It doesn't matter what your sexual identity or your opinion or your political affiliation or your socioeconomic status, whether you're an addict, a thief, a liar, a swindler, sexually immoral, all are welcome to come to this fellowship to be a part of learning who Jesus is and letting Him come into our hearts Apply the blood of the covenant of God on us. Show us who we are. Show us who He is and say, follow me. And we can without fear abandon everything and follow Him. But you'll never get there until you know who He is, until you know who you are, until you know who they are. And you have His compassion on them. Paul says, such were some of you but you are washed. There's the new covenant. Every one of us, everybody sitting in this room, the indictment of this text is that if you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know who you are, you will go around the gospel to try to get to heaven. And there's nobody, whether you're the most moral person I've ever met or you're the terrorist who just attacked in Paris, You can't go around the gospel to get to God. You need the physician. And they need the physician. And you know him. Bring them to him. Go get them. And bring them to the Savior. We need him. Father, we love you. We acknowledge this morning that you are the one that our hearts desperately need. God, I'm sick. We're sick. Were it not for the physician to come and take on flesh and walk this earth and take on my sickness, which led to his death, I would have no hope. Lord, that's one step of this text, and I pray that if there are those here to this morning that don't get it, they would come to you. Lord, many of us know, we know we're sick, and we've come to you because we need healing. But Lord, we're so guilty, just like the Pharisees, of not having a view of those people that they need you, and we won't go get them. Lord, why is it that those that are filled with your Spirit are so content to look around And cynically criticize, put down, cast out those who need you. God, break our hearts today that we would care for the sick. And that this place would not look so much like a cruise ship on the way to glory, but a hospital where the sick and the dying are coming to meet the healer. God, do it in our midst.